Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting. Before we get to a great podcast with Patrick Johnson of SVB, just want to give a quick shout out to cruisetax.com. We built our own tax service. It's easy. It's online. It's kind of like TurboTax, but for startups. And the best part is on the back end, you actually have a CPA doing your taxes. You're not doing it yourself. The CPA is doing it. We have some very smart and, you know, handsome slash beautiful CPAs that love doing taxes. So go to cruisetax.com. Check it out. I think you're going to like it. Thanks so much. Now on to a great podcast with Patrick Johnson of SVB. Thanks. Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting. And my very special guest today is Patrick Johnson from SVB, better known as Silicon Valley Bank. Welcome, Patrick. Hey, thanks, Scott. Great to be here. This is, uh, this is a big moment. I've, I, this is like, I think I made like seven or eight requests from SVB to do a podcast, and you stepped up to the plate. I really appreciate it. <laughs> well, this is my first time ever being featured on a podcast, ah, so thanks well, for the opportunity. It's fun. It's awesome. Um, so re- start off, why SVB, why you want to join, and what do you do at SVB? Sure. So to give you a bit of a context about my background and what brought me here, um, I actually started off on the managing cons- management consulting side. Um, I'd been with Booz Allen Hamilton, initially based out of D.C., later did a stint in Singapore. Um, in between, spent some time working for clients in France, uh, founded a startup over there, and uh, ultimately landed uh, in San Francisco as part of Booz Allen's strategic ventures team, um, looking at tech scouting companies that we could invest in, strategic partnerships, uh, tech commercialization options and, and all of those types of things. Um, the thing is that once you land in San Francisco, it's hard not to get the startup bug and just want to spend all of your time working with startups instead of, you know, Fortune 500s and big government clients. But, and you had a startup before this. I did. So wait, we'll get to that, but, I don't, <laughs> but I'm super excited to talk about that. But yeah, so you did you catch the, the startup flu? Yeah, I, I caught the startup bug. And so after I'd been on the ground uh, for about six months or so, um, was actually looking at joining a startup, taking an operational role there. I had a couple opportunities trying to decide between. And then almost out of nowhere, I learned about Silicon Valley Bank. Um, And a good friend of mine uh, back from Paris, um, we were friends when we were both living there about four years ago. Um, He had since joined SVB in a very similar role to the one that I'm in now. And uh, he kept uh, kind of raving and going on about what a great place to work it was. Um, I progressively met the rest of the team that, that he's a part of, and uh, it didn't take long for me to totally drink the Kool-Aid and want to be a part of it, too. Yeah. And you guys have, like, huge market share. You're the, our recommended bank. We refer, we refer a lot of clients to you guys. Like, you guys are just easy to work with. It's a, it's a, you've really, I think SVB has really, over the years, just perfected the service. They perfected the technology. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a pleasure to actually <laughs> bank with SVB, as cheesy as that sounds. Yeah, well, I mean, this is one of the things that drew me to the bank. I mean, I was really surprised to just learn about SVB's market share and uh, kind of the types of clients we work with. I mean, we've been around for 35 years, and we specialize with venture-backed tech startups, um, life sciences, and we also have a premium wine business. And uh, I think today our, we're working with roughly two-thirds of all venture-backed startups wow. in the U.S. Expanding overseas has been a big kind of initiative and focus area for us um, with operations in the U.K., Israel, China. Um, this year we're opening in Frankfurt, Toronto, and Dublin. So oh, my gosh. That's awesome. Yeah, basically going to wherever we see entrepreneurship yeah. happening and these kind of emerging innovation hubs. Yeah. And by virtue of working with all these startups, and we also bank around, I think around 80 or 90 percent of all VC funds as well, including have our, having our own fund and funds of funds. Um, we just have a lot of visibility into things that are happening in the marketplace. Yeah. We're able to connect a lot of dots, and it gives us a really good perspective that, you know, and that's value that we can pass along to our clients. Yeah. And you, you were talking before we turned on the mics. 
the SVB, there's a bunch of things I want to cover, but you guys effectively invented the startup lending world, like, or in startup banking and startup lending. Like, how do you, who in their right mind would ever lend money to a money losing company, right? Like, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, that's our, that's really our whole reason for existence. Um, you know, honestly, some of this is just uh, geographic luck in the fact that we're based here in Silicon Valley um, and have been since our founding, you know, 35 years ago. It's also why um, we also have that kind of the, the premium wine venture that I'd mentioned. But on the venture debt side, um, it turns out that uh, banks have a really difficult time lending money to companies that are losing money. And, you know, sort of by definition, a lot of early stage and growth stage startups are still burning cash. They're investing a lot in building out their product and their teams and going to market. Um, and so while these companies might have raised a lot of venture capital, um, have identified a really promising market opportunity, they didn't really have options to, to look at debt financing options. And this is really where SVB came in. Um, you know, going back to our founding, we found ways to be comfortable lending money to these companies that were still burning cash. Uh, a lot of that came down to building relationships with the VCs who were backing them, um, really leaning on the VCs for an additional layer of, of, of just due diligence and validating the kind of the business model and the, and the plan. Um, and then everything's just sort of sprung from there. It's, it's amazing. And I think what people don't realize, even though a startup is losing money, they're building enterprise value. If, in, and by the way, you can't just lend money to every startup or you'll be out of business like in six months. So mm -hmm. it's really about picking, having good judgment, evaluating where they are in product development, market adoption, who their investors are, things like that. But I think the big insight was, hey, even if things don't go perfectly for this company, they're building enterprise value, they should be able to raise more money. Or if they have to, they can sell the company to a larger you know, institution and the loan will be good. So it's not like uh, there's actually more cushion or more kind of um, ability to lend or more enterprise value than people might think from the outside. Yep, absolutely right. Yeah. And then, so you guys are, you guys kind of pioneered this market. And by the way, yeah, you were in San Francisco, you were in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, but like it, there's a lot of banks that were in San Francisco and Silicon Valley that you got, it's actually really amazing. If you look at like pull up SVB stock chart, I think you guys are like five, a 5X over the last 10 years or something mm -hmm. crazy. Like the bank has, has really, really grown. Yeah, I mean, we have. We've got an amazing senior leadership team in place. Um, I've had the opportunity to meet with our CEO, our president, um, some of the other senior leaders. Uh, they really have amazing vision in terms of, you know, the market that we operate in and the different products and services we kind of build out to support our clients. Um, just last week, actually, we found out that our stock is being included in the S&P 500. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Um, which is awesome. And it's, you know, further kind of external validation about the value we're bringing to the table here. That, that's incredible. Wow. Now I feel stupid for not buying SVB stock like five years ago or 10 years ago. Um, we'll talk about kind of um, like venture lending in general. Like we talked about how you conceptually underwrite it. Like there's enterprise value being built and you lean on the investors for due, due diligence. But what are the some like specific things you look at? What are the specific things that make it seem like a really good loan opportunity for you? And what are some of the things you, you get kind of scare you away? So I'll answer that. But first, to provide some more context, I'll just get into kind of how we structure as a team at yeah, SVB. Perfect. Um, so we do have market facing teams or sort of kind of vertical um, market specializations, but we're largely grouped in an early stage practice, uh, which deals with companies that have raised under 5 million or have under uh, 5 million in annual revenue or ARR. We then have a growth stage practice, which deals with companies in the five to 75 million range, and then a corporate finance practice for 75 million and above. 
we don't really do much lending at the early stage practice for you know seed stage companies or yeah. companies that are doing friends and family money still. Um, venture debt really starts entering into the picture at the growth stage, um, which is the practice I'm a part of, uh, focusing on enterprise software companies. And the way it typically works is you have a company that's closed, uh, say, for easy math, a 10 million Series A round. You know, we'll want to understand um, what the company's doing, the reason for existence, you know, who the founders are, the investors and whatnot. Um, you know, we don't just look at the amount of money raised. Really, the more important thing is figuring out the value that that company's building. Um, but still, the amount that they've raised uh, is a proxy for what sort of a debt burden they could look at or how we can sort of size a debt facility. Companies tend to think about debt in two different ways. You have some companies that are looking at venture debt as more of a bridge before, uh, to tap into before um, kind of their next equity raise. And the rationale behind that is, um, you know, if we're able to provide an extra two quarters of runway in venture debt um, and the company continues growing at a fast clip, when they go up for their Series B raise, um, they're able to command a much higher valuation, which means that the uh, kind of the cost of capital ends up being super low. It's cheap capital for them help them prevent further dilution on the cap table. Um, and it's just kind of a good thing all around. On the venture debt, I mean, we get paid through uh, typical interest rates. Um, we generally take a warrant position in the companies as well so that we can share in the upside. You know, we're big champions of the companies that yeah. we work with. And then there are other companies, so that's sort of one one use of venture debt. And it, other companies- Just to go back to that for mm-hmm. one second, like a bridge in the venture capital world, bridge is kind of a bad connotation because that usually means you've gone out to the market and can't really raise money from outside investors. And so your investors do a bridge for you. And I think it's, it's important for everyone to know that like you guys are not in the bridge lending business either. Like when I was at Lighthouse, people would assume, like, they'd be like, mm-hmm. I couldn't, they would actually tell me this on the phone. They'd be like, I couldn't raise money from VCs. So I'm hoping you can give me some money. And I'm like, actually, no, that's, that's actually not how it works. Like <laughs> totally. you want you guys are looking to come in. Usually when the company's done an equity round, everything's fresh. And my philosophy and probably your philosophy is you're providing those incremental one or two quarters I almost think of it as like extra insurance or extra mm-hmm. runway off of the VC round. Sometimes you'll, I'll, I'll talk to founders and they'll be kind of overthinking it. They'll be like, well, instead of raising 10 in equity, I can raise eight and do 2 million of debt. And my advice in those situations is always raise the 10 million of equity, raise whatever you really think it needs, mm-hmm. and then raise a couple million dollars of debt to give you that added runway so that you're not putting a ton of pressure on the lender you're not short-circuiting yourself at the time where you need need capital the most. Yep. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. And that's how we think about it, too. I mean, the reality is the best time to raise money is when you don't really need it. Yeah. Um, we're not really in the business of making bridge loans. Um, we recognize that the venture debt facilities we put out are sometimes used as a bridge loan. But the thing that makes us comfortable making, um, you know, putting those proposals and term sheets in place is really the business model, the investor syndicate, who the founders are, what they're building. And actually, just what you mentioned is kind of the second big group or kind of the second main usage of of venture debt, which is an insurance policy. A very surprising number of uh, venture debt deals that we do uh, actually never get used. And they're really just there in place if, you know, product market fits taking longer than expected um, or it takes longer to, to do the next round of fundraising or whatever that might be. It's, it's really just there as an insurance policy. Yeah. Sometimes it's really helpful when the product market fit is there and the company, like venture capitalists read the balance sheet. They, they know exactly how much money is left in the company and how much time. And so sometimes they kind of slow roll the term sheet a little bit. 
And so having a couple extra million dollars or another quarter of runway so that you can actually be in a stronger position and negotiate your next round is really valuable. So there's times where the money doesn't get drawn down, but it was actually provided a ton of value. Yep, you're totally right. I mean, it's clear that you've been in the game for a long time, and, and I know that you guys are working with a lot of clients and giving them good advice and counsel on how to look at these types of things. And you're right. I mean, it's all about having leverage. And um, we want to put the companies that we work with in a good position to you know, command higher valuations, to keep investors involved. And ultimately, our job is to help make the companies we bank successful. Yeah. And that's really how we should be judged as a bank. That's, uh, that's an awesome point. Cause, and that's why I don't like, it's good that you guys take some warrants in the company. You're actually participating in the upside. You actually have an incentive to help the company in a lot of situations. And then I think a lot of people don't realize like as the company grows, they're raising more capital. There's more deposits sitting in the bank that you can lend out mm-hmm. to other people. Maybe they're doing international stuff, and so there's more wires and things like that. Like, banks are kind of the perfect business model. The banks mm-hmm. make money in a lot of different ways, and so if the company is successful, it's not like you need to make all the money on the the loans. You can make a little bit of money on the loans and a little bit of money on the deposits. It, it's a really nice kind of a business model package that the startup benefits from because you provide so many services. Yep, that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, so going back to our founding and kind of our heritage, while we might have started with venture debt, um, over the years we built out a whole host of services and offerings that sort of cater to the tech ecosystem and to the entrepreneurs and the investors we bank. Um, So now we have, for instance, like a a private bank and wealth management service. Um, We started SVB Capital, which will make direct equity investments in, uh, in some of the companies we work with. Um, we have a fund, we bank a lot of funds and have a fund of funds yeah. ourselves. One of the initiatives I'm actually most excited about at the moment is called Silicon Foundry, which is effectively a corporate innovation platform that we're marketing to Fortune 500 corporate venture teams. And effectively what we're doing is we're providing them access to our portfolio of clients. And it's a very cost effective way for these companies to tap into the kind of the innovation economy. Um, and we're in a great position then to help these Fortune 500 partners of ours identify some of the most promising technologies or startups that they can then partner with, invest in, buy. It sounds like you want to be part of this program if you're an SVB client, or it's a reason to come over to SVB if you're working at another bank. Like that's that's pretty awesome. Like you don't hear about that from other banks. Yeah, it's really cool. And you know, and that was one of the things that drew me into the role. Um, I mean, my favorite part of my job is is just meeting founders. Um, really digging into the details of what they're building and why they're building it, and then basically becoming an advocate for them, helping them think through some of the strategic problems or challenges they're running into. Next week, I'll be traveling out to Hilton Head, South Carolina for a uh, financial services summit. And uh, one of the things I'm doing out there is effectively uh, serving as an extension of the sales arm for two of the clients I'm working with. Wow. Um, I'm just super excited about the technology and what they're building, and, uh, and I know that they have some prospects out there. And so it's all about connecting the dots. That's really cool. Yeah, getting like that kind of access and help from your bank is just, that's an unheard of. That's a really amazing. Well, in a way, this goes back to, to our senior leadership team, you know, that we were talking about a few minutes ago. Um, I think these guys have uh, really good foresight that, you know, increasingly capital is becoming a commodity. And so for us to remain relevant and to kind of maintain our place in the market and to have a compelling value proposition for all of the, the, the companies that we work with, we need to go above and beyond. We need to keep reinventing ourselves and figuring out additional ways for us to add value to these clients. I always joke, sometimes the best stuff is when we're off mic, but you guys are actually really able to grow with your clients now. And I remember I was working at Lighthouse in 2002 was when I started, so that was 15 years ago. 
SVB was still kind of a regional bank, but now you guys have grown up, grown up with your customer base, and it seems like that's the the incubator that you're you're mm-hmm. working with. Like that seems like something that you're planning ahead, you're planning forward, you're helping the companies get bigger. You maybe used to have didn't have an incentive to do that because they might leave you, but now they're sticking so long through IPOs. It's really lucrative for you guys. It makes sense to make those investments. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a really good point. You know, our corp finance uh, practice, which is the the group banking companies above seventy five million, they've been doing a great job. Uh, we actually are, are behind five of the last six tech IPOs. Wow. Uh, for the last five, but then DocuSign just announced. Uh, I think they were filing today. Um, another client of ours, and yeah, we want to continue growing with these companies as they get bigger. Um, this is also, I think. One of the one of the reasons why we've been aggressively expanding overseas. We want to be wherever these companies are, are growing, um, where their employees are, where their clients are, their customers, their investors, um, and so we want to ultimately build out a global footprint that can help support that. That's amazing, and I didn't didn't think about the overseas stuff in the context of like almost I would say fifty percent of the clients that we have. We have like one hundred sixty clients on monthly recurring. They have an overseas software development team or overseas, you know, engineering team that's assembling whatever products they're selling. Like everyone is global these days, mm-hmm. so it makes total sense for you guys to have all those global operations. Yeah. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, I published a piece called "The Globalization of the Startup," which ah. is looking at just this phenomenon. And um, it was initially driven based on this survey that we do called the uh, Startup Outlook that we publish in January of each year. And one of the findings that really jumped out to me in in this last report was that 51% of startup founders in the U.S. and U.K. are first-generation immigrants. Um, And so that got me thinking initially, like, huh, what will all of the kind of current uncertainty around immigration policy and whatnot, how will that uh, sort of influence how these people and where these people decide to go grow their businesses? Um, But then I also started looking at, it used to be that Silicon Valley was the only name in the game. Other cities and countries are really catching on, and they're doing a lot to incentivize tech talent, entrepreneurship, um, and all the rest. And so while Silicon Valley is still the center of the ecosystem in a lot of ways, uh, there's a compelling case to be made to expand overseas. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, in a way, it's kind of crazy uh, to be based here, be a Series A company, and then be, you know, have to compete with Facebook and Google and Salesforce and all the rest for engineering talent. When you could still start here, incubate your company here, raise money here, keep some operations, but then build an engineering hub in Budapest or Toronto or Dublin or Beijing, a host of other places. Um, And the reality is it's never been easier uh, to operate as a global company. Yeah, I totally, I I totally am with you. I mean, we just hired a VP of engineering or VP of technology and he's based in Austin. Mm -hmm. And like... This is so silly, but actually, we the best money I think we've spent is buying Zoom, the com- mm-hmm. video conferencing sure. service. It's like, it's like you're just in the same office with people, and like for these global uh, tech development teams, or even for you guys, like to be able to connect with your London office or your uh, I forget the other places you're starting offices, but like you guys can have a really cohesive strategy and share uh, leads with each other. And it's just, it just it's getting easier and easier to have a global operation now. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, it actually makes me think, so we have a bit of like a frenemy relationship, I'd say with Stripe. Ah, um, you yeah. know, obviously I'm a big advocate of Stripe. I've been a business user of Stripe with, uh, with our startup. And we partner with Stripe on a program called Atlas. Uh, which effectively helps companies all around the world and now in the U.S. Uh, get registered and start up as a corporation. 
Um, starting a business is, historically, it's been pretty hard, bureaucratic. It's involved paperwork. And when you're founding a business, it's generally because you want to found the business. You don't want to go through all the administrative and bureaucratic stuff, um, kind of back office. And so what Stripe Atlas does for something like $500, um, a company gets set up with an SVB bank account. You get registered as a Delaware uh, C-Corp. Stripe sets you up with merchant services, so you can start accepting payments from anywhere. Um, There are other partnerships with uh, Amazon to get you AWS credits and PwC to help with tax advisory and all the rest. And that's just led to an explosion as well, where we're seeing more and more, uh, I think we've had accounts open from 124 different countries at last count. that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And also, people don't know this, but Stripe runs on SEV's ACH rails. (laughs) Like, that is the, you guys enabled this company like big time, you yeah. know, like I think I hope that every night when they're they're counting their money after an IPO that they give a shout out to SVB because you guys have really done a lot for that company. Well, and I mean, like as a as a prior user of Stripe as well, I love the product yeah. they built. We use it. We use it for all collections at Cruise Consulting. And it was a, we used to have a really kind of fragmented collection cycle and structure and. We just standardize everything on Stripe. I actually remember, you don't know this about me, but I have a nonprofit called Ben's Friends. And 10 years ago, when Stripe first came out, we were using PayPal to accept donations for Ben's Friends. And my buddy was a developer. The, ben, the co-founder, was a developer. And he's like, hey, there's a new thing called Stripe. Let's just embed it in our website to accept. And we were one of, I don't even, we were like, had to be one of the first people to ever use Stripe, and it worked like a charm. It's a, it's just a great service. Yeah, but that's that's awesome. Yeah, Stripe Atlas is a really good program. I've seen a lot from them, and those guys reach out to us all the time. And they're uh, they're it, it's an interesting group. They're I'll I'll, I'll yeah. tell you more when we're off mic, but um, but it's what they do for entrepreneurs is really great. Oh, and one of the things that I thought was interesting with that is the initial purpose of the program was just to help overseas entrepreneurs um, start their companies in yeah. the U.S. Last year, they ended up expanding it to allow U.S.-based companies to do it because there was simply so much demand here uh, for a streamlined way to get registered as a, as a new company. Totally. I mean, I think anyone, any of our companies that are using any kind of subscription or SaaS business model are using Stripe. It's, it's, it's universal. It's awesome. Um, so you have another, there's another cool SUV product that I've seen recently, which is, I, I think it's a credit to you guys. You're always coming up with something new. So there's this thing called it's a new lending vehicle called Robot as a Service, and it's effectively like equipment financing for companies that are building robots. Can you maybe that, – that's just kind of – Robot as a Service is a really good tagline and great marketing. Whoever thought of that <laughs> deserves a raise. But maybe talk about like how you guys think about equipment financing and the difference between that and growth capital and how much equipment financing you really like to do versus the normal kind of growth capital mm-hmm. loans and, and, and AR loans. Yeah, I mean it's really team and company uh, dependent. So like on the enterprise software uh, team, which is where I spend the bulk of my time, we generally don't do equipment financing um, just because these tend to be SaaS companies and it's just not really relevant to their business model. Um, Robot as a service is something that comes in on the hardware side. Um, We've got an amazing team over there and they're very in tune with the market. Actually, one of the shifts that we've been making, I think, as a bank and when we look at the talent we've been bringing in. Um, it used to just be that, that SVB would hire bankers or people with a finance background. Increasingly, we've been trying to hire operators, you know, oh, people who have actually run startups or who have technical depth, um, can credibly speak to things that are going on to really understand the nuts and bolts of the business. Yeah. 
Um, and I think that's one of the things that has led to these new kind of innovative lending products like Robot as a Service. Yeah. There's also something called accounts receivable lending, which mm-hmm. is actually pretty helpful. In the SaaS world, you guys, you guys, you guys have like a SaaS, you, you have a kind of a yeah. smart marketing term for that for SaaS companies, right? Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Well, so I mean, uh, <laughs> AR lending is super important and something a lot of businesses don't even think about because... And some of this, not to get wonky, but some of it kind of depends on how um, a company invoices, yeah. how they do their accounting. If it's accrual-based, obviously you know all of this, and that's yeah. why I refer. But it's okay. <laughs> explain, explain to people. Like people who, when you invoice someone to be paid, like you mm-hmm. provide a service, you invoice them, that becomes accounts receivable, money that the, exactly. the customer owes you. Yep, and there's typically uh, there's typically a lag between when the you know the products or services or goods or what have you are delivered and sold, and then when that revenue is actually realized and shows up in your bank account. And so AR lending in its simplest form is you know I sell you a service for a hundred dollars, you pay me that hundred dollars thirty or sixty or sometimes ninety days after you receive it, um, depending on whatever agreement or contract we have in place, and that's when I actually get paid. But for companies that are growing, you know they don't have the luxury oftentimes of waiting to get all of these accounts receivables checks coming in or payments coming in. And so an airline of credit is really useful because basically that will allow these companies to access the, the money that they've invoiced pretty much instantly as soon as they've invoiced it. Um, you know, there can be some restrictions in place. Like for the most part with, I, with our AR lending, um, we want to make sure that the people who owe you money are actually credible and can be kind of counted on to pay. Um, but then from there, we can put a facility in place that's, you know, very inexpensive and provides you the capital right away that you can then reinvest in your business. Yeah, that's the name of the game, reinvesting it faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and then do you, guys, do you guys have any, like, SaaS vehicles, like software as a service kind of loan vehicles? I remember this in the past. Maybe I remember, like, there was, there was some shorthand where you would – it was something like you'd be willing to loan three months' worth of bookings or something like that and minus churn. Does that ring a bell at all? A bit. But I mean, it's one of these things where we've, I think as a bank overall, we've moved away from just having like one, one size fits all uh, yeah. lending products. And instead we really try to customize it based on each client. That situation. makes total sense. Yeah. And it's maybe sometimes it's like a really smart banker knowing how to phrase something the right way to catch the client's attention. Yep. Like, when, when a SaaS company is seeing a custom SaaS lending mm-hmm. product, it's probably pretty attractive to them. So what's, so what's next for SVB? You're growing internationally. You're developing all these new lending products. Like, what are the other things in, in your incubator? Sounds amazing. And I wish Cruise Consulting could get into that because <laughs> we, could, we could probably use that too. What are, what are the other big things you're excited about? Well, a current initiative right now is around helping further build out our early stage bundle. Um, and what this is, we're trying to put together all of the types of services that a startup would, could really benefit from when they're getting their operations off the ground. So, I mean, we already have a very competitive banking offering. So the early stage bundle includes fee waivers, free checking, credit card programs, all the rest. You know, the, the, the nuts and bolts of, of what you would expect a corporate banking um, solution to be like targeted to a startup, um, you know, delivered at no cost. But we also then want to look at all these other services that a company would benefit from. So this is where uh, partnering with with companies like yours is really useful because we want to bring in uh, outsourced CFO, CPA as a service, um, things of that nature. We want to work with more with providers like Amazon and lining up AWS credits for our companies. We want to work with, you know, tax preparers, basically all of the back office kind of solutions and products that a company would benefit from, let's just bundle it all up and then just offer it to these startups to help them get off the ground so they don't have to do the work of, 
of piecing things together one by one. It makes so much sense. We actually do that for you guys too, in the sense that like they come to us and are like, who should I bank with? You know, or a lot of times you see, I'm sure you see this a million times. Like they'll be banking with like Citigroup or Wells Fargo or, or Chase, some gigantic entity that has no customer service whatsoever or bank of America. And, the, and they're a startup. They need actual, some personalized service. They need mm-hmm. personalized products for the startup. And so they'll ask us and we'll be like, yeah, go to SVB. Because I think the other thing that people don't quite realize about you guys is you have the best online banking services. Like everything is very easy. I think your APIs are really good. You integrate with things like Plaid or QuickBooks Mm -hmm. Online. It's easy to pull the data out of QuickBooks, which actually makes our life a heck of a lot easier. And our Cruise Consulting's whole game is we are going to innovate and be super efficient, automate as much as possible so that we can hit low price points. Mm-hmm. That's kind of why we have been able to take share. And you guys actually enable that. Like some of your competitors are like our team is spending an hour on the phone with their customer service team trying to get like bank access. You know, it, you guys make it so easy, which ends up saving the startups tons of money, which means they can put more money into technology development. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're happy to hear the value that kind of you see coming out of the platform. Yeah. But, I mean, this is why we exist. Yeah. But the, I think kudos to you and your senior management of like making those investments. It would be, mm-hmm. it'd be very easy to be kind of a bank and be fat and happy mm-hmm. and not make those technology investments because a lot of people don't think of banks as like super technology oriented. But you guys actually are. Like it makes well, a difference in our lives. But I mean, we need to be. Like think about it. It wouldn't look good if we were the bank for you know entrepreneurs in the innovation economy and we weren't innovative or entrepreneurial yeah. ourselves. Well, it doesn't stop some <laughs> of your competitors. So um, kudos to you guys for doing it. Anything else that, that, that people should be aware of that SVB is coming out with soon or any, any other things that we can help promote? Well, I, I'd really go back to the Silicon Foundry initiative. I mean, I'm just so excited about this. I, I don't think there's another more compelling offering on the market or could be, frankly, um, because the real value of the Foundry comes from the relationships we have and the fact that we're able to tap into this huge portfolio of clients and, and the rest in our ecosystem. Um, so I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of that. Um, the other thing that I am excited about is we just get more focused as a bank, um, building out a lot of sector, uh, kind of sector expertise within our various banking teams, which I think the entrepreneurs that we work with will find a lot of value because they're going to be dealing with people who actually understand their business yeah. at, a, at a much deeper level, understanding the technology behind it, the business models and all the rest. Totally. I, that actually, I see it in action all the time. Your, your bankers understand the business models of the companies perfectly, and they can, it's, it's a very quick conversation, and they, they can mm-hmm. make a yay or nay go really quickly. Okay, we've got to wrap up because we're <laughs> over time, but we forgot to talk about your Parisian business. So get, do the one minute on this. And by the way, everyone's going to be jealous. They're going to be like, why did you come back to the United States? But give the quick skinny on that. All right, so um, to set the scene, my wife and I are living in Paris uh, I'm working for a CIO over there at a financial institution, um, really having a great time. Um, on the side, my wife uh, and I had come up with this idea for basically doing uh, gourmet picnic deliveries as a service um, for tourists around the city. And so we helped launch a company along with two co-founders called Paris Picnic. Um, we launched the company in 2013. We ended up spending most of the next four years as the number one ranked restaurant in Paris. Um, which was kind of amazing because for the first half, we weren't even a restaurant. Um, There's actually a bit of a saga with us getting delisted from TripAdvisor after hitting number one the first time. <laughs> um, fortunately, it was during winter, so we could kind of seamlessly close up operations. And then we relaunched the next spring, having also opened a brick and mortar shop in the Marais. 
that could qualify us as a restaurant. And then we re-rose to number one after starting from scratch. Um, learned a ton of lessons, um, have a lot of bruises as well from that. In a way, you learn more from, <laughs> from messing things up. Um, so I feel like I can relate to a lot of the founders I'm dealing with out here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that was also a very difficult thing to do um, with, uh, with a partner. And so, like, for me, it was uh, kind of nights and weekends. It was my wife's full-time job. And so when the opportunity came up for me to relocate to Paris or relocate to Singapore to rejoin Booz Allen and help them stand up this new commercial consulting office over there, um, one of the reasons we wanted to take the jump is that it would put some real physical distance between us and the business and, uh, and would, en- would enable us to go back to having just a normal relationship. And, um, and fortunately, we had kind of a co-founding team in place who was able to pick up the reins from there. Yeah. I mean, I, we, you and I hit it off partly because of that, because like Vanessa and I work together yep. and you and your wife work together. It's, it's really actually really fun to work with your wife or it husband. Is. There's also some downsides. You have to create, bar- you know, barriers uh-huh. and things like that. But I, I mean, a Parisian restaurant, a picnic restaurant just sounds like the, like the thing that would be in a novel that like the it greatest was, job of all time. I, in hindsight, um, well, not even in hindsight at the time, we kept talking about how this really needed to be a reality show. Um, because we had about a dozen people working for us, um, all for the most part, you know, very cool young Parisians, musicians, what have you, who needed some extra money. And it would be super chaotic as we were getting all of the deliveries and orders ready for the day. And then we had this little three-wheeled Piaggio uh, named Pepe that would go out and uh, would go out and make these deliveries around around the city. And then... um, we had literally hundreds of surprise wedding proposals and birthdays and anniversaries. And over the years, we built out a bunch of ancillary services, um, kind of vertically integrate what we were doing on the picnic side to provide um, kind of additional services to tourists who are coming to the city. Um, But yeah, it was was a lot of fun and um, made us very customer-centric, customer-focused because, you know, we would get instant feedback from people and uh, and it really helped us, uh, I think, build a quality company and product. And I think the other point is like it helps you relate to all the founders you work with. Like mm-hmm. you know what it's like to try to scale something and work out the problems. I mean, when I was at Lighthouse, I never had a job like that, so I I didn't really understand. And now that we're like thirty six people, I really understand. Like I can empathize at a very base la- level mm-hmm. with our founders, and it, it just makes you a more <laughs> empathetic person. You understand you're a great partner because of that. It really helps quite a bit. Yeah, for sure. You um, learn a lot. <laughs> so Patrick, thank you so much. Maybe you can tell everyone where they can find you and how to reach out. Yeah, so I, I tend to keep a pretty low profile on social media, but I'd love for people to connect with me on LinkedIn. You can find me under D. Patrick Johnson. That's probably the best place. Otherwise, uh, I, I'll include my contact info in, I guess, the show notes and reach out if I can be helpful. Love meeting with entrepreneurs, learning about new businesses, and just seeing where I can help. Awesome. All right. It was a pleasure, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye.